invite you to take your hymnal and turn in your hymnal to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. It's going to be our focus today. Paul tells us in our epistle lesson to rejoice always. And such commands, which occur often in Paul, always lead me to a little bit of disagreement. Well, all the time? Surely sometimes are not appropriate to rejoice. Bad things happen to which it would be strange to rejoice. So are we really supposed to rejoice all the time? And how do we then, anyways, how do we command our feelings, right? If I can tell you, be afraid. Well, that doesn't really work. I might tell you something scary and that might make you afraid. But simply saying, be afraid, isn't really a good way to be afraid. Certainly not a good way to become more joyful. Be more joyful. Doesn't work. Even more so in this season of Advent, when we have our third Sunday, which is traditionally focused on the theme of joy, hence the the pink candle, but it's kind of a relic of a a former version of Advent, which was far more penitential. Uh, The Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church today, Advent is a more penitential season for which the color is purple. The Eastern Orthodox actually call it the Lesser Lent. Now, our our focus has shifted somewhat, uh, somewhat, so it's more of a, a restrained season of a celebration building up to Christmas, but without quite the same penitential focus. So the third Sunday of being told to rejoice, okay, we've heard this message a couple times, instead of it being a break from an otherwise penitential season. Now the truth is, is that Christian joy is a complicated and beautiful thing, a thing that, that is worth reflecting on and a thing that is worth understanding because it's deeper than our common, ordinary notions of human happiness. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Psalm 126 as as something of an anatomy of Christian joy, an anatomy of Christian joy. And let's start by um, reading it uh, responsively, whole verse by whole verse. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth... The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out sweeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. When we take it as a whole, this psalm presents us with a a, a wonderfully nuanced and complicated notion of joy. It it hinges around verse 3 and 4. Moving from 3, the Lord has done great things for us, we are glad, to verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the desert. It turns in just two verses from joy to sorrow, from thanksgiving to prayer. From celebration to lament. And today's goal is to understand how that is. Why Christian joy, why for Christian joy, sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive. Christian joy is in fact both a celebration of God's past events and a prayerful anticipation of his future acts to save, even in the midst of sorrow. So let's go back and kind of unpack this. The psalm begins with a tricky expression to translate. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Literally, in Hebrew, it could read something like, when the Lord overturned our overturning. 
when he turned back our overthrow. We were like those who dream. That is, we could barely believe it. We couldn't believe what we were seeing, and we thought, well, this can't possibly be real. We must be fantasizing. So when did God do this? Now, there's a number of events in Israel's history to which this might correspond. The exodus from Egypt was certainly an an unprecedented overthrow of their slavery. But, of course, the most likely candidate is the exile. When Israel's sin and idolatry had led it off into exile, and the people of Judah had been captured by the greatest empire in the world, the empire of Babylon, and their, their leaders and those who survived were taken off to live in the most powerful nation in the world, who for the next 70 years endured a relentless campaign of Babylon to capture their imagination so that they would no longer remember their homeland, no longer want to go back, but would think of themselves as fully Babylonian. But then one day, the empire falls, and the Persians take over, and an order comes down from Cyrus, the new ruler, that they can go home. It was as unexpected and unanticipated as they could possibly imagine. They thought they were dreaming. People just don't do that in the ancient world. They don't get unconquered. But so it was for Israel. They were returning home. And what's beautiful about this, it's not simply that God did something great for Israel. Look at verse 2 again. Our mouth was filled with laughter. We didn't even know how to talk about it. Our tongue was shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, among those who don't know Yahweh, Yahweh has done great things for them. See, Israel wasn't just the recipient of God's action. They were the conduit of God's action. The pagans who didn't know Yahweh were coming to praise Yahweh because of what he had done for them in restoring them from exile. And thus, there's something even more important to see here. It's not simply that God did a great thing for them. It's that he, through that thing, did a great thing through them. God does great things for his people that he might do great things through his people. For just an instant, they were what they were called to be in Genesis 12. A blessing to the nations. A way that Yahweh was known to all peoples. And this was simply too much to believe. It was too real, too too good to take in. And so they thought they must be dreaming. But what's important as they close this this section in verse 3 is that it's real. They confess it. Yahweh has done great things for us and we are glad. The joy is real. The event happened. Yahweh made it happen. No matter how overwhelming it might seem. This overwhelming nature of joy is something we kind of can sympathize with. We all know have had some events in our life that just seemed too good to be true. Maybe a couple for a long time struggles with infertility. And then one day they finally get the test that they are pregnant and expecting. And it overturns all their expectation. They had given over to not knowing and not expecting anymore. Or maybe months and months of applying for a job, and you finally get that offer. Not just an offer for any job, but a job that you didn't think you could possibly get. We have events in our lives where it's hard to believe just how good it is. My wife and I lived through this a little bit this summer. You guys, I think, have heard that for the first 16 months of our time here in Nebraska, we were earnestly hoping and waiting for our foster daughter that we left in Washington to be restored to us here in Nebraska. And there was setback after setback after setback. And finally, this summer, when I was at Synod Convention in Milwaukee, we were on a Zoom meeting with lawyers and with adoption people and with social workers, and we were literally having arguments about the future of this child, and we did not know how it was going to turn out. But then, kind of out of the blue, someone in the meeting said a sentence that meant she was coming. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. 
My wife's little image, she was still here in, in Nebraska, little image turned off, she turned the camera off because she went to go sob because she couldn't understand it. It was too good. And a month later, she, after another month of it, she finally got here. And here she is. And we rejoice. Yahweh's done great things for us, and we are glad. There's one more instance in which we might see this kind of joy. This joy, especially in the mind and heart of those who have come to know Christ. Those who have lived a life under the reign of their own sin, their own idolatry, their own rebellion. And they've come to accept, this is my future. This is who I am. But then one day, the gospel breaks through that. And they hear, wait a second, no, I'm not going to be defined by my divorce. By my crime by my abortion, by my mistakes. I'm going to be defined by Jesus. And that is a radiant light that they can barely believe, that can barely believe for joy. We all think of things in our lives where it can truly be said, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And it's important, this psalm wants us to cultivate joy, not by trying to manufacture feelings of joy, but by reciting those past events. By remembering, yes, Yahweh did this thing for us, and it made us happy. It was good, and it was real. Thus, Paul's command to rejoice always is not a command to feel a certain way, but to do a certain thing, to retell the story of God's great acts again and again and again. But the very fact that we have to remember them, the very fact that they are a thing in the past that we have to recollect, means that that, their joy doesn't last forever, does it? The exiles returned home from Babylon, And all their exaltation faded real fast when they realized that now they had to rebuild the walls. Now they had to build out of nothing a city and a civilization. They had to rebuild a temple that turned out to be a really mediocre sequel of the first one. This is the same thing that parents go through. And the the joy of bringing a new child into the world is met with weeks and weeks and months and months of the baby fog of just not having sleep. For us now, we have not one but two toddlers at home. And as we are overjoyed at this great thing God has done, we are decisively outmatched. It takes at least four adults to handle one toddler. And what you saw, I don't know if you realize, this was a miracle. People say Lutherans don't believe in miracles. This is a miracle. And all the parents in here know this. If you were here for the very brief service last night to watch the CDC kids sing, you'll realize that you saw some, a great thing Yahweh has done through the masterful skill of some hardworking and long-suffering women. They organized those little monsters into doing something together. I did, took some time this week to, to look up the DSM, the Psychological Manual, and I compared toddlers to the attributes of sociopaths. And it's a thing. Egocentric, emotionally manipulative, impulsive, attention-needy, remorseless, poor behavior control, and a failure to conform to social norms, like wearing pants. It just, no, I'm not going to do it. And and as a father whose toddler was up there today, I literally could not believe my eyes. So it is with a new Christian convert as well. Someone who brings the joy of having discovered Jesus into a fellowship of people who don't feel that joy and has to learn to get along with the people who bicker about silly and stupid things. We all go from that move from joy to sorrow. From the joy of something new to the difficulty and pain of something very difficult. And it makes us all feel guilt. I can't possibly have been joyful because I should still be now. I can't be joyful in the midst of this sorrow. I can't be frustrated. I'm frustrated now, but it means, where did that joy go? And this is precisely the point at which there's a stark difference between Christian joy and mere human happiness. Because mere human happiness cannot coexist with sorrow. But Christian joy can and does. 
Verse 3 and 4 are held together. Christian joy is held together with sorrow, in the midst of sorrow. But ordinary human happiness can't handle this. So it rejects one or the other. Ordinary human happiness says, well, you know what? We're just going to cover it. We're going to reject sorrow. We're not going to be sad. We're going to find ways to cope. We're going to artificially substitute joy with happiness. We're going to numb the nerve endings with, with plastic joys and high fructose corn syrup. Maybe, maybe it's drugs or alcohol, but maybe it's more like Netflix and Amazon and, I don't know, you name it. What is that thing you do to distract yourself, to turn up that volume so you can't hear that sadness anymore? Because you can't believe that that sadness can coexist with joy. Sure, we, we know that such things are lesser joys, that they're fundamentally dissatisfying. But we learn to content ourselves because they're on tap and they have two-day shipping. Or maybe we don't try to numb ourselves and deny the sorrow. Maybe we try to deny the joy. And we say that dourness is a theological virtue, a fruit of the Spirit. We turn cynical and we turn up our noses at foolish fellow believers with all their silly laughter and joy. We substitute joy for a sneer. We say, no, no, following Jesus makes you reverent and sober and realistic. I hear that the, the Catholic Church, when they're uh, analyzing a, a potential saint to canonize, will consider and look for, is there evidence of joy in this person's life? And that's good, because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And we are not less Christian if we actually re- celebrate and rejoice in that joy. Because for the Christian, we know that joy and sorrow can coexist together, that both are real. And here's why. Because we know that neither of them is final and absolute. No joy and no sorrow that we have in this life will last forever. Because we know that no joy and no sorrow that we have is the actual goal. Think about the people of Israel. They come back to the land. It's great. Their mouths are filled with laughter and their lips with shouts of joy. Living in Palestine was not the goal. Being in the temple, being where God himself could dwell, that's the goal. God himself is the goal and the substance of all our joys. That's the truth that we see with all the other things that give us joy. They are means of showing us the true joy, the joy that we will never lose. St. Augustine said that no one's truly happy unless he knows he will always be happy. There's only one thing you'll know that you can never possibly lose, and that is the joy that God himself is. The joy of having God. So Augustine says all the other things, all the good things, the parenting, the the job, the return from exile, they are all things to be used for the sake of God. But God alone is to be enjoyed. God alone is the source and goal of joy. God himself is that, that radiance that seeps through the cracks in all our other joys. So here's how a Christian should see all those other joys. Like we see John the Baptist. We can see and enjoy all those great things in life and hear John the Baptist's voice saying, it's not me, I'm not the one you're looking for. There's one coming after me. There is a joy coming after me that is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Because Christian knows that that God himself is that unending joy. So with that as the source and goal, we can then turn in the midst of sorrow and look to a future where that joy is real. That's what happens in verse 4 and 5. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Do it again. Do what you once did, just like streams in a desert, where the creek beds are all dried out, just as suddenly as a rainstorm can bring new life to the desert. Do so again. But notice in verse 5 and 6, this is not a prayer of desperation, not a prayer of despair that says, I can't do anything else. 
This is a prayer that knows that because God acts for his people, he acts through his people. And so verse 5 and 6 both talk about the life of labor that comes from joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bearing his sheaves with him. The assurance of future joy is what compels labor in the present. Meaningful work for Christians. We know that those tears that we sow, that resilience we show, that hard work or that patience in the midst of suffering, that that matters now. It is charged with meaning. Just like the exiles could return and rebuild the city, not because it was going to be as great as the first one, but because they believed that the line of David would hold and the Messiah would come. The disciples endured rejection and opposition, knowing that the kingdom had come. Parents weathered the tantrums and the screaming, and workers weathered the difficult days and long nights and tedious tasks. And new converts who trust Jesus in the midst of a difficult church realized that following Jesus matters because their labor is not in vain. Their labor is not in vain because Christ is born. Christ is born. Joy isn't simply some far-off thing. Joy entered into our human flesh and participates in our life. I want you to think about that. God himself, that goal of joy, became flesh. He became one of us. He became one of us precisely so that we might, as human beings, have that joy forever. One of my favorite instances in the Bible of, of unbelievable joy is right after the resurrection. Jesus comes to the disciples and shows himself to them and says, I'm, I'm risen. And they, they, Luke 24 says, they disbelieved for joy. It was just too good to be true. That his cross was not his overthrow and defeat, but his defeat of death, the liberation of all humankind. That his resurrection gave the lie and destroyed the claim of every sorrow to last forever. And more than that, he had fulfilled Israel's calling. He had been what Israel was always called to be, the one who gathers the nations to the kingdom. And he had blazed a trail of faithful human obedience so that they know that because he sowed tears of blood and he reaped sheaves of joy, a church, a bride from all nations. That's you, by the way. You are the joy that Jesus won on his cross. And he did this so that he could fill you with that spirit and form that same joy in you. So that you could live by that same fruit of the Spirit. And rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Because he labored in tears, you are reaped with his joy. So you know, then at the end of your life, at the midst of all this story as it plays out, you will stand before the evaluating eye of your maker and you will hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Think about that for a second. God saying, That made me happy. Your life, you made me happy. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable that because of Jesus, we get to be part of the divine joy. C.S. Lewis said this in a very powerful quote, that the deep mystery of divine joy, that it includes us. And he said, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father delights in his son, that seems impossible, a weight or a burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. Because Jesus was born, you get to be part of the divine joy. That joy that fills and floods and through the cracks of everything is something you are not simply an an object of, but a participant in through faith in Jesus. So it is, brothers and sisters. 
And that's something worth rejoicing for. That's something worth praying for in the midst of life's sorrows. To know that that is the future that's before us in the risen Christ. For Christ has died, and Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. As God's people, we rise and we turn to uh, hymn 515, and we sing.